you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the, world. in the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. The CEOs, authors, thought leaders, visionaries, and motivators. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times. Because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. This is Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. Thechrisvossshow.com. Hey, welcome to the show. My voice is breaking. What, what's going on there? I'm losing my opera voice. Oh, it's not opera voice. Well, on the show, guys, we certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. As always, we have some of the most amazing authors, brilliant minds, CEOs on the show. And we have a New York Times bestselling author of Sons of Soldiers on the show for his new book, Bridge to the Sun. We're going to be talking to him about what he has in the latest book that just barely came out. In the meantime, be sure to further show to your family, friends, and relatives. You know the drill. Go to goodreads.com for just Chris Voss. Go to our big LinkedIn group, the big LinkedIn newsletter. Check out our new LinkedIn audio chats. We're starting to do almost daily over there on the big LinkedIn and the pretty cool stuff. It's kind of like Clubhouse over there, only with the kind of more professional speaking stuff about business. And we'll probably be talking about the podcasts and the authors and books that we have on the show and uh, all that content. So be sure to check us out over there. You can find me at linkedin.com for just Chris Voss. And there's the stuff on the Chris Voss show. He's the author of the newest book that just came out September 27th, 2022. Bruce Henderson is on the show with us today. He's the author of Bridge to the Sun, the secret role of the Japanese Americans who fought in the Pacific in World War II. Welcome to the show, Bruce. How are you? Hey, Chris. Doing good. Thank you. Awesome sauce. It's an honor to have you on the show with us. Give us your .com so people can find you on the interwebs and get to know you better. Yeah, BruceAndersonBooks.com. There you go. And you're the author of more than 20 nonfiction books, including a number one best times New York Times bestseller. It was made into a highly rated television miniseries. Your books have been published in 20 countries. What motivated you to write this latest book? Well, you know, the uh, subtitle on this book, The Secret Role of, I mean, a lot of times the subtitles are marketing hype, but I have to say I was at the National Archives researching my last book, Sons and Soldiers which takes place in the European theater. And I came across the fact that there were Japanese-American soldiers who were sent to the Pacific in the war against Japan. Now, I knew about the, the Nisei, as they were called, who fought in Europe for the 442nd, which was the most decorated small unit in, in, in that theater during the war. But I did not know that uh, these guys were sent to the Pacific. And uh, I'd written books about World War II including a couple about the Pacific Theater. And so I made a note. I said, I'm going to come back, circle back around this and find out how that was for them. Because obviously these guys, their families, and a lot of them were in internment camp. Uh, oh, wow. After Pearl Harbor. And, and that's an interesting aspect of the story, of course. Now, during the war, this was a highly secret program because... We didn't want the Japanese army in the Pacific, the bad guys, to know that our units in the Pacific had the language skills that they could, that they could hear over the radio, understand Japanese. They could read captured documents. And the Japanese army was very blase about that. They just assumed that Westerners uh, were not going to be able to understand their, their really complicated language. 
And we didn't want them to know that, you know, our battalions and regiments in the field had these 10 man Nisei teams that were fluent in their language. Wow. How many, how many civilian prisoners of war did they, did they, is uh, this, this covered the survival story of more than 2000 civilian prisoners of war. Talk to us about what that was about. I mean, were these all, were these all boys that came from internment camps? Uh, well, they were for the most part and they weren't prisoners of war, but they were for the most part. Well, they were with their family rounded up shortly after Pearl Harbor and taken mm-hmm. into these internment camps. And uh, so the army or the government, our government, put them there. Why? Because, well, because we weren't sure of their loyalty. They were, after all, they were Japanese. And would they, you know, what would they do in terms of sabotage and all of that? Well, within a few months of the outbreak of the war, the army, U.S. Army, really realized that we needed some of the this language skill that I was just talking about. So the recruiters would go to the internment camps yeah. and they go, okay. Now we need you guys. And I got to say that not everybody felt really welcoming in the camps. Uh, For the most part, uh, they did take the the young men who were there were, A, anxious to get out of the camp, and B, anxious to prove their loyalty to their country. They were born in America, after all. They were as American as you or me. And by the way, of the 110,000 ethnic Japanese in these camps, 60% of them were American citizens. Yeah. And so they were the Nisei. They were the children of the Japanese immigrants, their parents, who were had come over here, worked hard, farming, whatever, but were not allowed to become naturalized citizens. We're not allowed to own the land that they farmed. And but, of course, their offspring were purely these American Nisei. And they they wanted to prove their loyalty. And a lot of them got on the bus right there in the camps and they went off. Well, I must say the army, after they gathered them up in the camps, they usually took them out about four in the morning out the back gate because they didn't want anybody in the camp demonstrating. And, you know, there was bitterness there and not everyone in the camp felt really well about that. Yeah, we had, uh, oh, who was it that we had on the show? We had Bruce uh, Bradford Pearson came on the show for his book, The Eagles of Hard Mountain. I don't know if you heard about that, but he'd written about a football team that had come out of the internment mm-hmm. camps. And uh, yeah, they, they came around offering people, hey, you want to go fight a war for, you know, you can either stay in prison or go fight a war. It's kind of like, it's almost yeah. kind of like what Russia's doing with the Ukraine war, where they actually went to some of the Russian prisons and, and have been recruiting for soldiers out of it. And it's like, well, you can either stay in jail or you can go to war. Yeah. Kind of an interesting thing that we were doing and kind of a, a dark point in our history. But how does it work out with with having them, you know, being able to help us with intel and and everything else in the world? Yeah, well, first of all, they were um, the the Nisei that the army thought were most valuable, and they were were those who had been sent over as boys, which was not uncommon by their by their parents to Japan for mm-hmm. a year or two or three years to go to school, middle school, even high school, and of course they came back before the war started. And they were actually called Kibe, Kibe, which means to return. And so they came back to America. And then when the war broke out, uh, of course, they were still fully fluent in the Japanese language, having gone to school in Japan. Not every Nisei who, say, was born and raised in California and never left uh, was fluent in, in the language. I mean, they went to the high schools down the road and that kind of thing. And certainly the Army couldn't make them fluent in the six-month program that they 
But what they could do once they got somebody who was fluent in the language, they could take them in in six months, teach them how to be, be an interrogator of prisoners of war. What could you say to them? What can you not say to them? What the terms were, army, military terms, the Japanese army, the American army. So this was a six month program. And once they got out of that, they were assigned to a 10 man, 10 man intelligence team that went into the Pacific and went to various other units. I mean, one of, one of the guys and my six, we follow six of these Nisei soldiers. And the way I chose them was, you know, where they were in the war. I wanted coverage. I wanted one of them in Iwo Jima, one of them in Burma, one of them in Okinawa. I didn't want them all at the same place because I wanted to show, you know, the theater wide campaign. And, but if you can imagine, I mean, the guy who was, who was in the, at Iwo Jima. I mean, he was on the, in the sands of Iwo Jima with the Marines in a Marine uniform. And he had his own, he had his own security guard assigned to him to, to keep him from being shot mistakenly by, by friendly fire. Holy and, you can, and you can imagine because this was at a time when at that same time, there was word was going out that the Japanese soldiers were stripping the bodies of the dead Marines at Iwo Jima, putting on their uniforms and infiltrating their lines. So if you see oh. any Japanese in a Marine uniform, go ahead and shoot them. Wow. So we got our, in the meantime, we've got our guy who's being the interpreter and translator there. And so it was a dangerous thing on, on, on both sides. You know, he, he could have been shot and, and some of them were. Some of them wow. Were. Really? Holy yeah. crap. Yeah, I have a, a. I would have a big sign on my back. Uh, right. Friendly fire or something. I'd be like, uh, hey. So you profile, my understanding is you profile six people in the book. Right. And their stories and, and stuff like that. Give us an example of one, if you would, please. Well, this guy at Iwo Jima is, 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 is certainly a good one. But I got another guy named Kazu Komodo who fought very early in the summer of 43, in fact. He, he was the first Nisei to go into combat. They hadn't even sent him over to Europe yet, the Nisei unit over to Europe. And he was wounded in the Solomon Islands, shot in the knee. And so he was evacuated to, uh, to a hospital in Fiji prior to coming to the United States, where he recovered for another 30 days. But while he was in the hospital, I mean, he not only did he have the distinction of being the first Nisei in World War II to win a Purple Heart for being wounded in combat, but he was in his hospital bed when Eleanor Roosevelt, the president's wife, came through, was doing a tour of the hospitals in, in the South Pacific. And when she got to his his bed, you know, the doctor introduced her as one of the Nisei interpreters. And, and so she was being very motherly. In fact, she saw really thousands of patients in dozens of hospitals on that tour. And it was really something. But she, you know, is there anything that we can do for you? Can I, you know, where? And Komodo, who was a humble, kind of shy guy, but he decided he would take this opportunity. And he said, well, Mrs. Roosevelt, I want to tell you, my family, they're, you know, they're, they're in Arizona desert, you know, behind Bob Wire, you know, in a camp. Wow. And I'm out here getting shot at. And I don't think that's fair. Mm -hmm. And so Mrs. Roosevelt, of course, said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll let the president know how you feel as if the president didn't already know. But later, what was funny was Komodo was rather guilty that he had challenged the president's wife in that way. But he he felt that he he needed to, you know, he needed to say how he felt. Well, anyway, he goes to the States, 30 days, recovers. Now he's given leave to go and visit his family in Arizona. He's on a bus. He gets off one town short of the camp. He heard, he's heard that in the camp, they don't get a lot of fresh meats there. So he's decided he's going to shop and bring some 
some some uh, good food into the camp to his family. So he goes into this little grocery, goes to the back where the butcher is set up, and he says, yes, I'd like these cuts, these cuts. And the butcher looks over at him and says, we don't sell the no Japs. Wow. And now Komodo has his uniform on, has his, has his medals on, including the Purple Heart. And Komodo says, I'm not a Jap. I'm an American. And the butcher looks over again as if kind of seeing the uniform and the medals for the first time says, all right, what do you want? So, I mean, even at this point, he did get the meat and he did take it to the, to the calf, to his family. But even at this point, here's this guy, you know, this wounded veteran at home fighting really kind of another kind of battle, if you will. Hi, folks. Here's Foss here with a little station break. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. We'll resume here in a second. Uh, I'd like to invite you to come to my coaching, speaking, and training courses website. You can also see our new podcast over there at chrisvossleadershipinstitute.com. Over there, you can find all the different stuff that we do for speaking engagements, if you'd like to hire me, uh, training courses that we offer, and coaching for leadership, management, entrepreneurism, uh, podcasting, corporate stuff. Uh, with over 35 years of experience in business and running companies as a CEO, uh, I think I can offer a wonderful breadth of information information and knowledge to you or anyone that you want to invite me to for your company. Thanks for tuning in. We certainly appreciate you listening to the show and be sure to check out chrisvossleadershipinstitute.com. Now back to the show. Yeah, it's just extraordinary. We're still fighting, you know, these battles of racism and prejudice, even today, after all these times. I mean, yeah. we, we did the same thing with with African-American people, black people in, in yeah. World War II. They came back and, and uh, Vietnam and and we're like, hey, man, what, you know, I serve this country. I put my life on the line. And, you know, it's a yeah. state of affairs. I, uh, I feel I feel like there was really, I mean, even though I kind of stumbled into this topic serendipitously at the archives, I, honestly, I feel like there's never a better time to have a story like this. Come yeah. out. I, I say, sadly, we we do in this country often prejudge people, you know, uh, way too much based on race, religion, countries of origin and all of that. And. There's this, this strong anti-immigrant bias, and I think what we need to, you know, this is a this is a message of of, of courage and and true patriotism that you know that these guys showed at a time that was not and it was not easy for them and certainly oh. not for their families. And I mean, you come back from the war and you're returning to an internment camp, you know. I mean, yeah. hey, let's get the guy a nice house and release his family. And I mean, it was extraordinary the whole history of the internment camps. And it's really important we learn from this history. The one thing man can learn from his history is man never learns from his history, and that's why we just yeah. go in circles in our lives. So this is an extraordinary time. You called it, you know, this is the secret group. Was it was it a secret? Was it a widely held, classified sort of? thing that they were trying to keep the, the Japanese from figuring out that we had an edge? Absolutely. And it was, I mean, really the highest classification. We did not want the Japanese army to know that we had those language skills in the Pacific. And they did not. They did not wow. learn that. And so there were the Japanese that were really pretty arrogant, feeling that, you know, the Westerners wouldn't understand them. So they were sending out a lot of messages during in battles there, uh, uncoded and in the open. One of my characters, <laughs> Roy Matsumoto, who was with Merle's Marauders in Burma, they were walking along the jungle at one point, and he looks up and he sees a telephone wire overhead, and he climbs up a tree and taps into it. And he's it's it's enemy communication. They're talking back and forth. 
And uh, he's up there for a few hours listening to whatever, you know, is being said. A lot of it, you know, not important. But all of a sudden, somebody comes on and says, I'm a sergeant. Uh, we're guarding his ammunition dump. I've only got three soldiers here. I, the Americans are around here somewhere. Send me help. And so the guy on the other end says, all right, well, give us your coordinates of that ammo. <laughs> the guy reads off the coordinates. And the thing is, he was, they, the Japanese and Americans were using the same British army maps. The British army were, the British were the only people that had mapped Burma at that, by, at that time. So the coordinates, the coordinates matched up, right? To what, so Roy comes down out of the tree and, you know, gives this information. <laughs> And they radioed in. Well, the next morning, they hear this single airplane flying over, and it goes down a bit, a mile, a couple of miles away, and circle, drops one bomb. Wow. Blows up the entire ammunition dump. Well, and that's the kind of information, you know, I mean, that not only were they taking ammunition away from the enemy, but they were saving American lives. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Because American lives were being just, we lost a lot of people during that war. You know, we had another author on the show who talked about how they, they were integral in mapping the coral reefs that were killing a lot of Marines because they would, they would ground the, the boats when they would try and land, they would ground on the coral reefs. If the, if the tide wasn't at the right place at the right time, and then they would just be just cannon fodder or gun fodder. And so, you know, there's a lot of people that died in that war necessarily. I remember reading books that like, if you were in the first couple of waves of Marines, you just knew your body was going to be, you know, pile up on the beach. Um, it's crazy. The stories that came out of that theater. Do we, now, were you able to interview a lot of these men and, and talk to them? What was that like? Well, it's getting more difficult to find World War II veterans. I mean, even if they were really young, in that war, they're well into their 90s now, and it's really getting more difficult. My last World War II book, Sons and Soldiers, of this, again, I, I followed six soldiers in Europe. Four of them were alive, and I was able to go and spend several days with them and interview them. And in fact, two of them are still alive at age 100 and 101. Wow. Pretty amazing. The six Nisei that, that I chose, only one was still alive. I did get to interview him, but by then he had you know, lost some of his memory. But the reason I was able to do him and the other five, who, of course, were deceased when I started the book, was because they had earlier done really extensive oral histories. Nice. There are different groups that have them in for, for the Jewish soldiers, for example. The Holocaust Museum has done a lot of testimonial stuff and, and oral histories for the vets. In the case of the Japanese-American soldiers, Go For Broke is, is one foundation that has brought them in. When they were, you know, somewhat younger and obviously still alive, able to remember and talk about what their experiences. And you see, when you're doing a book like what I'm doing, it's called narrative nonfiction. That means nonfiction, I don't make up anything, yet it reads like a novel. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's why I'm following only six characters. I'm really diving into their, their what they were feeling, uh, feeling and thinking and all of that. Well... I can't make that up. And if I can't talk to him in person, then it has to come from somewhere. And these oral histories were, you know, I was able, I looked at about 20 or 30 different guys and chose these six because I had the material that I needed. And you talked to, there's a, there's a thing here in the story that you tell about Mrs. Komodo getting a wire from it saying that her son has been injured. And these folks are living in a internment camp, right. or I guess what they called at the time a relocation center. Yeah. 
It's some so, of them call them concentration camps, that, you know. That that may be an appropriate term. The you know they're living they're living in this hell. They've lost everything that was taken from them. You know I've heard the stories about how you know it was a, it was a great real estate land grab to throw these poor folks into re- these uh, internment camps and literally steal all their stuff between their real right. estate and their businesses and the, mm-hmm. you know stuff that they had. They literally had like I think very short time to just just grab some necessities and some basics and they really couldn't take much with them. And, you know, here they're living this way and they're trying to, you know, farm, you know, sand dunes and, you know, these, these places in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, meanwhile, they've, they've got to deal with the trauma of their children possibly dying. And I'm sure a lot did during the war. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, some of these older, the older folks, now we're talking the parents of these, you say soldiers, they, they never recovered. I mean, they weren't wow. old enough, you know, when the war, by the time the war was over, they had, you know, their best years, let's say, you know, were already past them and they couldn't start over as, again, you know, uh, on a patch of land and through the miracle of irrigation, making it productive. I mean, they never really recovered and, and a, a good number of them never even returned home. They they didn't even try, you know, to go back. And wow. uh, yeah, that's a real, that's a terrible uh, cost for 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 them. And and yet they were not, overall, the bitterness was not there. I mean, there certainly were, were folks that, you know, you know, like Komodo saying to the, saying to the, to the president's wife, it's not fair. But at the same time, that didn't stop them from, you know, when the, when Uncle Sam said, we need you, they stepped forward and, and did their duty as Americans and, and their parents sent them off. And, you know, there's one mom, I think it was Mrs. Komodo who said, to her son as he was, you know, getting on the bus at the camp to go to the army, you know, make us proud, make us proud. Mm-hmm. And that was their feeling. Yeah, it's, it's wild. So you, one of the, ti- the title to the book, Bridge the Sun, what made you choose that title? It's a really interesting title. Well, it, I thought, you know, what these guys were doing was kind of like in a way bridging between these two countries. And because the, the fellows that I was going to write about, I knew had spent time in Japan and really loved the country. Had certainly had, you know, family there that they loved and, and friends they'd gone to school with and whatnot. So there were some, some real emotional conflicts for them. They, they, they were very clear on that they were Americans and that that was the right side for them to be on. But at the same time, they were, you know, extremely worried about these folks, you know, in Japan and what would happen to them. And, I know one of them had said early on in a letter that I read, you know, that he was really glad that his his relatives in Japan were living in a in a small in a relatively small city outside of outside of Tokyo. So he wouldn't have to worry about them being bombed. And and the name of the the name of that city was Hiroshima. Wow. Just a small city outside of thing. You've written a lot about this theater and, and war and soldiers and stuff. What what what? What was it that stood out in this book the most for you that that you really enjoyed? Well, Chris, when I'm writing, you know, when I'm writing one of these history books, I mean, I like I like to tell a big story through a few people who lived it. And again, I'm not, you know, writing like Cornelius Ryan, Longest Day, where he's got a cast of hundreds of people. In some cases, only one paragraph about this guy. And while there's certainly a value as a historian from doing that, I, I, I really want to get into the lives of these few. Uh, 
I, I think in a way I'm always looking for heroes. And, you know, I don't know if that's a good thing or bad. I don't try to make somebody into a hero at the same time. I love doing that to people who don't consider themselves heroes. There you go. <laughs> you know? There you go. And so I look for heroic, you know, and, and my definition of that is you're rising, you know, certainly what would be expected of you and that you're doing it not for personal gain, but, you know, to save others or to help others. And so that, you know, that drew me to the story. And the fact that, and by the way, it was, this program, again, was secret during the war, but it, it didn't get declassified for about 40 years. After really? The war. Yeah. Wow. Many, many of the secret classified World War II stuff, they didn't get, they didn't do a general declassification in, until somewhere in the 80s. And so a lot of this, we couldn't get to this. People couldn't get to this information that they needed. And then these fellows who were in these small military intelligence teams, they were told when they were discharged, don't talk about it. And wow. boy, a lot of them took that to their graves without, you know, ever talking about it, even to their own families, what they had done. And so I thought, you know, that was of interest. That's one reason why I think this story is largely unknown and untold as of today. Yeah, but it's very interesting because you're telling it from the point of view of what people experience. You know, you, you couldn't write about every single person in a war. Maybe eventually you could if you live long enough. That's a lot of books. But, you know, the, a lot of times those individual stories are exemplary of the bigger conflict and, and what goes yeah. into them. And, and like you say, heroes. I mean, these are, these are people who put their lives on their line for a country that had turned their back on their family and them. And then comes around going, hey, would you like to go die for the people who imprison you and and yeah. and take yeah. away all your things and treat you horribly? And you're like, I don't know, what, seriously? But these these folks go forth and they do an extraordinary job. They probably was it a, were you able to measure what percentage of maybe a difference or impact they made in the war? Well, in the case of the of the soldiers that were trying to do this in Europe, the German speaking, mostly Jewish soldiers that went over as the Ritchie boys, it was a, a post war study done by the army accredited something like sixty percent of the incredible, actionable intelligence that came from human sources, came from these language teams. And I would say, even though we don't have a similar report for the Pacific, that it would have to be about the same. There were major, you know, breaks in, in the Japanese, in, in our reading of their messages that, that just time and time again, not only won battles, but saved lives, as we talked about. I wanted to tell you about another guy named Takahiro Higa, who was born, who was born in Hawaii, but at age two was taken by his Okinawan parents back to Okinawa and lived there until he was in high school and he returned to Hawaii to finish out high school. When the war broke out, well, of course, he could speak Japanese, which is spoken in, in Okinawa, also the local dialect in Okinawa, as well as, of course, English. So the the army, you know, I asked him to join us this language program and, and he did willingly. His concern, though, from the beginning was I really hope I don't ever have to go to Okinawa and fight there because, you know, he had family, friends and all of that. And that was. And so when he ended up being sent out to the Pacific, of course, he ended up with an infantry division that was in, in Leyte, in the Philippines, planning the invasion of Okinawa. Well, somebody in headquarters found out that this that they had in their presence a guy who had, who had been raised in Okinawa. So they sent for him to come to the, you know, general's headquarters 
And of course, Higa was very concerned about that. He thought, oh my God, I'm in trouble. What did I do? I'm, I'm being you know, summoned. Well, he went into this, they, into this room that had all these maps on the wall and he looked on one wall and there was this huge blow up map of Okinawa. And he knew at that moment that why he was being called in there. And they had him, brought him back every day for a month to help him with the planning of this invasion in, in, on Okinawa. He, for example, that first day, they were showing him some photo intelligence, you know, pictures. And they said, now you see all of these, all these machine gun pillboxes on the coastline. We're going to have to take those out. And, and Higa looked at him and said, uh, sir, th- those aren't machine gun nests. Those are family tombs. Oh, my God. And, and I don't think you should blow them up. Yeah. And so it was that kind of, you know, they were, they were getting that kind of information from. Well, then when the invasion started, Higa, Higa was one of the first to get to, to land. And, the gen, you know, the, his commanding officer said, stick with me so I don't get lost. And almost immediately, the, our interpreters and, and translators there started trying to save civilian lives because the Okinawans had been brainwashed by the Japanese into thinking that if they were captured by Americans, they were going to die a torturous death. Wow. Better, better to go into the cave and blow yourself up with your family and choose your own time to go. Jesus. So they would sit, you know, Higa would sit outside from one cave to the next and with a loud, you know, bullhorn saying, I am an Okinawan boy. I am in the American army. We will take good care of you. And these folks, you know, they would come out by by the hundreds, you know, and wow. he'd go to the next cave. And so I, I just want to get to the end. Fifty years later, Takahiro, Takahiro came, returned to the Okinawa, obviously as an old man in the 70s. And the local paper did a story about him. And there were his pictures in the paper. And the next day, the reporter called him and said, there's somebody who'd like to meet you. And they set up this meeting at a restaurant. And Higo was there when this older lady walked in with a younger woman and they recognized him from the picture in the paper. And she sat down. She said, I remember you. I was in one of the caves. I remember you saying, I am an Okinawan boy. I am an Okinawan boy. And I just want to thank you because I walked out of there because of what you said. And you've given me this life. And and then the younger woman said, and I need to thank you as well, because my mother, you know, walked out of the cave and then gave me my life. So I wow. do my life as well. So Iga felt, you know, he accomplished what he set out to do. He never once fired his gun. He didn't have to in Okinawa, but he's, but his team alone, his 10, 10 man intelligence team was credited with something like 30,000 civilians that they brought out of these caves. Holy there were about a hundred thousand total that were, that were saved. There were many more who weren't saved and it was a horrendous, you know, the Okinawa was a horrendous battle and, and many civilians were killed, but mm. some were saved because of these guys. That, that is an extraordinary story. My God, that just sent chills up my spine. The, you know, the, the, the suicide element, you know, the kamikazes and the, yeah, I know you correct me if I'm wrong because you're the historian, the researcher here, but one of the reasons we decided to drop the nuclear bomb was because, because of the suicidal nature of, of their military and that we, we knew that trying to take the peninsula of Japan would, would, you know, it would be extraordinary cost to man, to our, our manpower and people would die because they were, they were just to that sort of mantra of their military. Did they help in determining that and making those decisions to drop them in your research? You know, I, I think that, that it was just viewed as, I mean, I've, I've seen estimates that mm-hmm. there were going to be a million 
yeah. a million American casualties, death and, and wounded in, in, in an invasion of the main, mainland Japan. And yeah, the civilians in Japan were, while they were lining up, I mean, they were, you know, they had their, you know, whatever kind of weapon they would have had, they would have used to defend their homeland. The, the, Japan in those days, it was, of course, a very militaristic government. And these, these, these fellows who, my guys in the book I covered, as I say, had gone to Japan for two or three years, and they had seen for themselves how the Japanese people themselves were really brain, brainwashed by Tojo and his, and his gang, you know, and were, you know, saying that we're, we have to defend Japan's, you know, Japan's security. But at the same time, they were invading China before they hit Pearl Harbor. And some of these guys said, well, why, why do you have to invade China to defend Japan? So, but the people in Japan were, you know, accepted this. And I think, you know, so, and yet, you know, they, they, they were a, a people that when war, when, when peace came, there were not a lot of, dem- there were not demonstrations in the street by the Japanese people that we want to keep fighting. They uh-huh. embraced, they embraced the end of the war. They embraced not sending their sons to war and, you know, really helped in the occupation to, to make, to have Japan recover from that war. There you go. And you write in the book too about how the soldiers became, they helped with the war crime trials after the, sh- after the war and mm-hmm. helped rebuild Japan. So they were right. part of that rebuilding thing. And that goes to the bridge to the sun, I think, mm-hmm. you know, kind of bringing these, these, these two countries together, at, certainly after the war. Yeah. It was really interesting how we went in and, and tried to rebuild and, and help them get back on their feet. It was a really interesting way that we did that and stuff. We certainly didn't do that in Vietnam. Well, we did it in Germany, too. I mean, you yeah. know, there was a time that, you know, I guess to be defeated by America was a pretty good thing. <laughs> and now we have Afghanistan. So wonderful history, man. I love reading about all this stuff and the stories that don't get told and the things that you can learn about history that, you know, hopefully we, we take these lessons and, and make them so that we don't make the same mistakes again, or at least I hope we do. Thank you very much for being on the show. This has been pretty exciting and insightful, Bruce. And I love you telling me these amazing stories. Give people their dot, your dot .com so people can find you on the interwebs. Yeah, BruceHendersonBooks.com and uh, Bridge to the Sun is available, hopefully, wherever books are sold. And you've written about how many, is it 20 books? Well, I, honestly, Chris, I stopped counting at 20 because <laughs> I thought it would make me sound too old. But yeah, over 20. <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, for example, looking for my next book right now. So it's like there we don't go. we don't rest on our. <laughs> for there long. you go. This would make a great movie too. A great yeah. Movie. There's, there's there's talk in Hollywood where, as they say, <laughs> awesome songs. Tell these stories and people learn your history. It's really important. Well, thank you very much, Bruce, for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. And thanks, my honest, for tuning in. Go to YouTube.com, Fortress Chris Voss. Go to Goodreads.com, Fortress Chris Voss. All of us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, all those crazy places. Thanks for tuning in. Be good to each other. Stay safe. And we'll see you next time. And that should have us.